0: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Barnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to
1: Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the great state of Spokane, Washington. The great city? State? Uh, um, Spokane, Washington. Brian Fry, how are you doing, sir?
0: We are a grand city state, much, much like Sparta. We just kind of you know run our own lives here and uh, uh, apart from all else, we're, we're a bastion of sanity in the, the great liberal West. So uh, no, I'm good, man. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And dad number one, dad number two, and soon to be dad number three, returning guest from the Three Musketeers episode, as well as from the Science Sort of podcast, Mr. Ryan Haupt. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm good, and as I alluded to, it sounds like you're about you're a little over a week away from becoming a dad for the first time. So,
2: yeah, if everything stays on schedule, that's what we're looking at.
1: I don't know. This will be one of your last things you do before you're really tired. So, (laughs) we're we're glad we got the fresh version of you all the time. A buddy
2: of mine, a buddy of mine who had a kid who's a little older than me. I think he uh, he wasn't he wasn't expecting to become a dad later in life, and, and then that ended up happening he told me he's a fellow paleontologist and he told me that it's basically as tired as you are towards the end of grad school and so i'm like okay well i can i survived that and i was obviously a little younger but not that much younger so that's what i'm anticipating and that's kind of what i'm going into this with so
1: yeah but maybe you'll be more happier like i feel like you know the payoff's more continual
2: you don't think you don't think a phd is as precious as a, a human child i i don't know. It doesn't look back at you and blink and like you know, grab your hand and like. All right. You know, I'll, yeah. I guess I'll take—I'll I'll take the bound copy of my dissertation out of the bassinet then.
0: <laughs> it, it does. It, it it does take the money like the, the the education did.
2: That's true. True, but but I don't think I don't think my dissertation's ever going to go and get their own job and then take care of me when I'm older. So I think it's uh, I think it'll even out in the wash. <laughs>
1: so Ryan. I mean, if
0: you invest right. <laughs>
1: so Ryan you do a science-based podcast tell the folks I at do. home about the science sort of podcast
2: I'm a science-based person uh, science sort of is a podcast basically if you if you were ever dying to hear what it sounds like at a lab happy hour when people are having a beer and talking about their projects and talking about whatever they've been reading and whatever they're excited about in the world of science that's basically our show we'll you know we'll interview authors and prominent scientists but we also talk to grad students so it's a really, really Wide net and if you're sort of just interested in anything in the realm of science uh, everything from sort of like not quite debunking Bigfoot but discussing you know that that level of sort of out there fringy stuff to like really hardcore uh, astrophysics and and evolutionary biology and stuff like that it's we, we try to we try to sprinkle in a little bit of everything
1: so yeah, give us a flavor what's one of your most out there like sort of podcasts that you know might not be something that most people would expect to hear
2: i always go back to this one gem of a show where these ecologists were trying to they were trying to prove a point about like how we build our maps of where animals are found so like if you go on wikipedia and you search a specific animal there usually be a map of where that animal is found in the world and those maps are big ba- you know they're they're there's like the science to building those maps is pretty straightforward. It's like, where have people reported seeing this animal? Or where have you found bodies of this animal in roadkill? You know, like it's, it's, it's sort of brute, brute force observational data that's put into a map. And, and then you fill in the gaps in between, assuming that the animal lives in all the places in between the boundaries that you've seen it at. And so they, they were trying to prove a point that maybe this isn't the most reliable way to do that. Maybe there's, there's bias that can be introduced into these, into these data sets that can um, screw things up. And so they decided that they were going to build a map and an ecological, and based on that map, an ecological profile of the best environments for Sasquatch. And so they did that as kind of a tongue-in-cheek little, like, ah, look at this. And then they realized that they had perfectly mapped the distribution of the American black bear, a large, shaggy animal that can stand on two legs. So if you are not used to being in the woods, you might see this large, shaggy thing standing on two legs, and you might report it as a Bigfoot sighting, and it might be that just most of the time, Bigfoot is just a black bear. There's not a lot of scientific studies that have like an M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know not to fight him for beef jerky. That doesn't go so well.
2: Yeah. So I just thought that was a really cool story that kind of went in a direction I didn't expect. I think that was episode 205, Chemical-Free Sasquatch, because we also talked with a chemist that was explaining a news story to us about a way to catalyze carbon reactions that might help us you know pull co2 out of the atmosphere so that's that's important (laughs) so
1: so ryan why don't you tell us what is one of your favorite movie moments because obviously movies are going to be for entertainment not for facts but what is a movie moment that was surprisingly scientifically accurate that you enjoyed
2: yeah, so I mean, there are movies that people like point to, obviously, you know, uh, as a paleontologist, I've talked ad nauseum about Jurassic Park, and we'll continue to talk ad nauseum about Jurassic Park, uh, it's it's still one of my favorite movies, even as a, a paleontologist, you know, warts and all. And then there's obviously like, examples like The Martian or Apollo 13, where like getting the science accurate is sort of the point of the movie. So like, I, I those are good examples, but they're not like my favorite example. One that I saw recently that I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this little bit of the science is uh, a movie that came out um, this year, actually, straight to Netflix called Stowaway. It's a space movie with Tony Collette and Anna Kendrick and Daniel Day Kim and Shamir Anderson and I don't know if I'm saying that last name correctly, but it's about a group of three astronauts who end up with a stowaway by accident. So basically, uh, Shamir Anderson's character gets hit on the head right before launch and is still on the ship when it launches, and they've only got enough resources because they, they get hit with like some solar storm or something. So there's something gets screwed up, and they don't have enough resources for all four of them to literally have enough oxygen to make it to Mars, right? Um, and they say, so, what do we do
1: with stowaways? You make them walk the plank. Right? right? Space right? plank.
2: But the reason i thought this was a cool science thing is so many space movies have like an artificial gravity on whatever ship they're on just because it's easier to film you know um which makes sense it's really apollo 13 they had to film everything in the vomit comet no shot could be longer than you know however long the plane was in its plunge so like 90 seconds so they, they have this system that they set up where the ship is on one end of a very long tether and there's a counterweight on the other end and they're spinning around a central axis And that's what's giving them the artificial gravity. So scientifically, that's a simple idea that makes sense. It's just spin gravity. But instead of having like a big ring like they have in 2001, it's just they're spinning opposite a weighted other end of this line. And the thing that's cool about that is... When you're at the the furthest out points of the spin, the gravity, the artificial gravity is gonna be the highest. So when they start climbing up towards the center point, it's really, really difficult. Like they're experiencing a lot of force that's basically trying to throw them back down to the end of the line. And as they get closer and closer to the center point, that that force gets less and less. So it gets easier and easier. And then when they get to the center point, they have to flip around and start climbing down this line. And that is also trying to throw them off the other end. So they have to be really, really careful going down because the further down the line they go, the more force they're experiencing. So they're more likely to get flung off this spinning two-part system into space. And I just thought like the very simple physics of the changing force along the axis of the spin and how that would just make the job of physically climbing up and down it really hard but also really counterintuitive because it gets like harder and easier as you go was a really cool little little way to create a dramatic tension in, the, in that moment in the plot.
0: Excellent. Very
1: great. That's a great answer, yeah. I, I look forward to seeing Stoway. I've not even heard of it, but the, the premise of it sounds enticing right away.
2: If I had to pick like a hyper specific sub genre of movies that always kind of work for me, it's a lonely astronaut story. Anytime there's an astronaut who's lonely, I'm into it.
0: I like it.
1: Well, today we have the movie is Twelve Angry Men, and we have three. I, I, I'm not angry. Are you, Brian?
0: I can be if you need me to. Uh,
1: I, I, I need to get. I need to get angry for this, so we can knock it up to fifteen.
2: Is that you're always angry? Like he's like Ben
1: Stiller to... from Mystery Man, like that's a superpower. He's Captain Furious. Yeah, Mr. Fury, yeah.
0: Uh, I uh I, I could just uh pull out a fake picture of uh my son that I had to beat into a man and just channel that. So today we're doing 12
1: Angry Men. It comes out in 1959. It's made for a small budget, even at the time, of $330,000. It uh, does not perform well in the box office. Uh, it's a little hard when movies are this old to know when they uh, where they land in the rankings if they fall too far down, and this one does that. So the number one movie in the box office that year was Ben-Hur. And Brian, wouldn't it be great if there was a podcast about Ben-Hur?
0: I mean, who hasn't thought of that? That just seems neglectful that... No one's thought about doing that yet.
1: Well, wait, there is one. Episode 40 of the Retro Movie Roundtable will quench your thirst for Ben Hur. But back to 12 Angry Men. IMDb gives it a 9.0. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it 100%, and the audience score is just about there with them, so at 97%. Right. It is nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Writing of an Adapted Screenplay. Bridge on the River Kwai beats it out on all three categories. Those are both great movies. Uh, Some years are just really hard at the Oscars.
2: I only recently saw Bridge on the River Kwai for the first time uh, like a week and a half ago, and I loved it.
1: It's also really good, so that's just a hard year at the Oscars. AFI gives it a lot of honors. It gives it 100 thrills at number 88. It also gives it 100 years of cheers. Uh, It is number 42 on that for most inspiring movies. And AFI's Top 10 Courtroom Dramas, this is number two, second to only To Kill a Mockingbird. So, Ryan, had you seen 12 Angry Men before? What was your background with it?
2: I had seen it before. I think it must have been my mom who showed it to me at some point because it was a movie she liked, and... I uh, didn't have any expectations the first time I saw it, and I was riveted and thought it was great. Um, I've never really checked out any of the, the more modern remakes. I, anytime I'm in the mood for this kind of movie, I just go back and rewatch the, the, this original version of 12 Angry Men. So that's sort of where I'm at with that.
1: Yeah, and has it held up
2: well for you over the years? I, lo- I love this movie. I think it is. I, I had so much fun watching this again to, to do the podcast with y'all. It was a true delight.
1: And Brian, what about you? Have you seen 12 Angry Men before?
0: Absolutely. My background on this actually started with the Jack Lemmon 1997, 12 Angry Men. I was familiar with uh, the play. When I saw the Jack Lemmon one, I'm a huge Jack Lemmon fan. So when I saw the Jack Lemmon one, I was like, oh, this is excellent. And then my next step was like, how many times has this been done? So when I saw the 1957 one with uh, Henry Fonda, I was like, all right, I'm game for that, too. And although I don't usually uh bet against Jack Lemon and stuff, I, I will say that this one is better. I have the criterion for this movie. It is it is probably my favorite movie of the black and white variety. Um, oh, really? So this tops the yeah, Maltese
1: Falcon for you? Because I remember you were big on that. Yeah.
0: Before. I I am. I am. That's that's probably its biggest rival. But I, there's a lot of passion in this movie. This is a this is a phenomenal less is more. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. shot in basically one spot. I mean, I I can't give this movie enough kudos for what it's able to do. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's a bummer. It's a bummer that it wasn't as uh, critically successful at the time. But I think, like all great genius, uh, it matures over time and and it has withstood that test and is now, I think, as highly regarded as any movie you could bring up from that era.
1: And I will be representing somebody who has never seen this movie before. This was my first time to it. I hadn't seen the remake. I hadn't seen anything more than the fact that it's on these AFI's thrill lists and the top 10 court dramas. So it's just been kind of out there for me to say, like, yeah, I need to see that. And uh, my wife had seen it before, and she had told me it was good. So it's just one of those movies that I needed to get to. And I'm going to chime in with you guys and the other 97% of the audience of Rotten Tomatoes out there. It's really good. It's really good.
2: And just for a little bit of extra context, because my best friend, who's also super into movies, is a defense attorney. And so I was texting him while I was watching it, being like, have you seen 12 Angry Men? Because we never talked about it. And he was like, yeah, but it's been a while. And I was like, you should rewatch it. It's still really good. And then I asked him, how does it stack up to how a jury room should operate? And he said, ha 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 we call that the absolute ideal scenario. <laughs>
0: I, uh, when, when, uh, I got shot the shortlist for this, uh, I know Chad hadn't seen it either and I was going over it and I was like, well, we're we're doing 12 angry men. Right. And there was like, I wouldn't call it pushback, but it was like, well, I don't know. I'm like, no, we're, we're doing 12 angry men. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say I was adamant about it. Like I wasn't going to like die on the Hill, but I mean, I would. (laughs)
1: <laughs> scheduling scheduling conflicts uh arose and chad couldn't be here so if there was ever a week to fill in i am i i hit the gold mine on this one so uh I, but for what it's worth chad didn't avoid this he liked it too so i'll just give I'll, right I'll yeah, yeah yeah it's not like he didn't I, like it so
0: he did send me a message after the fact he was like thank you for choosing this <laughs> he was like this was This was definitely something I needed to see. Like, he he was very complimentary toward uh, the choice. Nice. Well done.
1: Yeah. So, we will spoil 12 Angry Men. And this is not a movie you want spoiled. So, if you haven't seen it already, please check it out. and And it's short. Come back. Yes, it is short. And then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. We will be back after these messages.
0: Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back. And for
1: those who haven't seen 12 Angry Men, this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Brian, for those who haven't seen 12 Angry Men since 1957, do you want to refresh people's memory?
0: Uh, The movie opens up in the courthouse as they slowly go into a very, very lethargic judge reminding the jury of its need for prudence in understanding the gravity of this case. We then proceed into where they are sequestered to discuss what happens, only to find that just about everyone has their mind already made up. Now, I say just about because there is one juror who thinks they should talk it over a little bit more. Now, he is met with a lot of pushback, and uh, unfortunately uh, for him, some of that is rather violent or angry, if you will. He slowly, but methodically, Starts to turn the room, which is really what gives this movie its, its, its gold, is his slow but reasonable logical rationale as he picks apart basically what the defense attorney was supposed to do. From the murder weapon or the style in which it was used to the eyewitness to the second witness who maybe embellished a little bit. Uh, whether due to age or attention. And in the very end, it culminates in the room as a whole having more than enough reasonable doubt to acquit the defendant.
1: Wow, that's very good. See, if I were writing this, I would just say 12 men walk into a room and it turns out the architect was right all along. So. They-
0: <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to bring up he was an architect. I was like, I bet this is going to make an appearance here. I had to. I had
2: to. This is probably one of the first instances because i feel like it is now a trope in film and television if you don't know what job to give your sort of male lead character but you want to convey that they are a professional with some artistic ability but still like a practical person you make them an architect right it happens a lot you're right it does happen a lot and i think that's why i think it's shorthand for like uh, the things that are generic good guy qualities
0: yeah but what about the ones you want to hit with a car like ted mosby
2: well, I think that was where I think I noticed that that's what they were trying to do, and I think I noticed because it wasn't working. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. So I think that's why I first picked up on this as a as a uh, trope.
1: Gotcha. So screenwriter Reginald Rose makes an, uh, was inspired to create a drama focusing on a jury after his experience as a jury member on the case of manslaughter, which, you know, sometimes people kind of view jury duty as like, oh, man, I got jury duty, but... You know, to be on a heavy trial like that, it inspired him to go on to write this. Now, Ryan, what do you think about the screenplay and the plot that we have here of 12 Angry Men?
2: I love it. I mean, it's so simple and straightforward. It's literally, you know, 12 guys go into a room to literally decide the, the life or death decision of another person. And um, I've never actually served on a jury. I've been called up for jury duty before, but my number didn't get picked. But, and I actually think in a lot of ways, I would probably get... I would get disqualified from serving on a jury for a number of reasons. And, and, And so I think it's really, it's just a fascinating insight into this moment where these 12 strangers have to come together to decide the fate of another stranger and how, how does one behave in that situation? And it's really a character study for basically all 12 of them have sort of their moment where you learn sort of what's, what's driving their decision-making process, what's motivating them, what they care about, what what they value. Um, I just, yeah, I can't get it. I I, I think it's just a brilliant character study. And how many movies can you think of where like all 12 characters have their iconic moment and you don't know a single one of their names?
1: It's it's, it's a rule breaker for a lot of reasons. I mean... They don't really give you any background information on the characters and they introduce all 12 of them to you at one time.
2: The way they do give you background information is so subtle and well done and like the way Lee Cobb puts his wallet down and you can see that he's got the photo of his son like super early in the in the movie. Like it's it's so smart in the way that it handles the du- the little details it does dole out to you.
1: But in a way like most screenwriters would say, you don't don't introduce too many characters at one time. So This movie gives you 12 of them pretty much right at the beginning, fair to say, and you don't really know much about them. And it's through the course of what they talk about to each other, as well as the trial itself, that their personalities come out and therefore their motivations start to come out. So it's really interesting how that unfolds.
2: Uh, there's another rule of screenwriting about how, like you enter a scene late and leave early. And this breaks that rule too, because the whole it's just the whole scene, you know what I mean? Like it's the moment they walk into the jury room to the moment they walk out. Like it's the whole thing,
1: yeah. And I think it's also unwise, certainly by today's standards, to have face shots, face shots, face shots, and stand around talking to each other. It's like this movie does everything that you're not supposed to do. And it's pretty well regarded to the point where it's, it's held up as, like, this is one of those golden standards.
2: Right. But, you get I mean, you get two amazing leads like Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb and a director like Sidney Lumet. And, like, they just show that, you know, when, you, when you're a it's – that, it's that Mozart thing, right? When you are a master of the rules, you know how you can break them in ways that still make the final product work.
1: Absolutely. I've
0: literally never been called up for jury duty and I'm sure I would be disqualified almost immediately just because I've wanted to ever since reading the script for this. Mm. So this movie made me want to have jury duty. And it's funny because my boss had jury duty for two weeks on a assault and battery case, basically the last two weeks. And I'm just sitting there like I'm doing 12 angry men. My boss just basically got to be on a jury for one of these cases. And I'm like, <sighs> one day it'll be my turn.
2: No, now Brian, can I can I make a request? If you ever get called up for jury duty,
0: yeah, what's up?
2: Can you cosplay as one of the twelve Angry Men? And if you were going to, which one would which juror would you dress up as to go to court?
0: I I think I would have to go with.
1: I could see you doing juror number seven with that hat. I was thinking
0: juror yeah, seven with I, that I, hat I, and, the, was... and the
2: checkered jacket.
0: I really love Jack Warden ever since The Replacements and Dirty Work. So yeah, that would be a accurate nod to one of my favorite actors in, in later in life. Fry would be like, my fantasy football team's riding on this. I
1: got to get out of here and see the game.
2: Right, you, you, I right. think I think the way you're gonna get called up for jury duty for I is if you start buying tickets to baseball games that you really want to go to, and then the universe will make sure you get jury duty.
1: Well, you lost Brian at buying baseball tickets. Uh,
0: i yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I I feel like uh, I I feel like I'm on a list already or something. Like they know something about me, and they're like, I don't even send him a letter for it. It's just. He, he's watched 12 Angry Men. He's streamed it at least a dozen times. We probably can't use him.
1: You know, another jury movie that we did cover was Runaway Jury. Or Runaway I... Jury. Yeah, it's... Yes, that's the other yeah. Yeah, and I, I I saw that and I was just like, whoa, like uh, you can you can tip the scale here and extort somebody on this, like yeah. Uh, turns out I like jury movies. If anybody has any other good jury movies I need to see, let me know because we did Runaway Jury earlier and I dug that, and this is even better than that. So.
2: Yeah, I and I think I would. I've been told that basically, like if you admit that you have a PhD and have ever had a bad experience with a cop, you're probably not gonna have jury duty like they' kind of because who
0: has never had a bad experience with a cop
2: well you know and we all used to live adjacent to South Charleston so I don't think I need to say any more than that right, um, right. <laughs> uh, but but I've basically been told that like if you if you are too educated to be easily convinced by a simplistic argument you are probably not the kind of juror that uh, prosecutors are looking for so you know architects may not need need not longer apply these days who knows
0: so you have to play gullible to get in,
2: so yeah. exactly. Yeah.
0: See, I, I I still feel like I'm perfect for this.
2: You gotta you gotta go in with a newspaper and just be like, I believe everything I read in this today, and they'll be like, Oh, you're in.
1: <laughs> so, if you've ever sat in a jury as a juror, to your point, Ryan. But apparently, there's some things that uh, they kind of bend the rules, where they say, you know, if a juror were to go buy a identical murder weapon and bring it into the jury room, that would be inadmissible, and that. That uh, juror would likely be removed. Also, you're not supposed to go to the scene of the crime, which, when you think about it, you'd think that they would all be shuttled out there to be able to witness it if if it's pertinent.
2: No, I mean, but I think I think I mean, if if they're not sequestered as jurors, like however long this trial lasts, I think they said it was a couple of days. Like they were just released every day at at five to go do whatever. I don't know. That's that's an interesting point.
1: So they so so legally this is not tight,
0: but who cares? It's so good. Well, are are we sure that that's not like what would happen now versus what would happen in 1957? Again, if you just came in
1: and dropped the switchblade knife on the table, I think you're you are not going to be on the jury going forward. So.
2: Well, switchblades are illegal now, Russell.
1: Well, that that was well, illegal that, then too. Yeah, they true. pointed that out, and he goes, "I know." Right. What <laughs> I bought It.
2: But I
0: mean, I I'm just I'm wondering what like concealed carry looked like back then. I don't know. I'd have to do research on it. I just I feel like it'd be easier.
2: Going to a courthouse these days, you almost certainly have to go through a metal detector, so you're not going to be able to get a knife through regardless. Mm, um, good point. But, but, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, these yeah, days, currently. these days, if you were going to make a 12 Angry Men reboot now, Henry Fonda's character would just pull out his iPhone and said, I was walking past a store and I saw the exact same knife and here's a photo of it. Like, that's what he, you know, wouldn't be. The, it would be the. There, he would are, dramatically put, slam his phone into the table, not a knife.
0: There are 11,000 items on eBay matching this description. Do you think that there's a significance
1: to having... 12 mainly white, like I guess uh, one of the jurors is vaguely ethnic to some degree.
2: Yeah, this movie's, this movie's take on race is fascinating.
1: <laughs> so I was, I was going to say, is, is there anything significant to having 12 white men? Because there have been female jurors, although I was surprised. It's not until 1973 that all 50 states were allowed to have women in the jury rooms.
2: But do you know the first state to allow women to sit on juries?
1: Uh, tell me. Wyoming, wow,
2: yeah. That's why. That's one of the reasons it has the now somewhat ironic nickname, the Equality State.
1: And since then, we have a great tradition of women judging us. So, (laughs) Um, (laughs)
2: well, and if you notice, if you notice on the set, you know there is a women's restroom adjacent to the jury room. You know, they go into the men's room at one point, but there is a women's room you can see in the background. But yeah, I think I think it is significant that they're all men because I think so much of this movie has to do with sort of ego and privilege and, and and not putting oneself in the shoes or, or mindset of another person whose experiences you may not have shared. And like the movie's take on race is very, it's a black and white movie. So like, you're not getting a ton of skin tone, but basically everyone in the jury room looks Caucasian. And there's one guy who has like a, a, a more European accent. So it's probably a more recent immigrant. And then there's one guy that they kind of code as Maybe like a lower class Italian person, and maybe the kid that is on trial. In the I say kid, he's eighteen. The kid who's on trial for murder is also considered maybe like a lower class Italian person. So I mean, it's like you're really going back in time with the racism in a way that is is kind of fascinating to me. Um, and I always thought that I always thought that like the way this movie handled race, the fact that like it's such an elephant in the room for so much of the movie, but the characters are literally in black and white. And it's kind of hard to tell who based on my modern perception of thing, like who in the room, like you said, is ethnic or not. Um, I think it's just a really interesting kind of time capsule.
0: Sorry. I just, uh, I thought it was interesting, but it, it wasn't just the first, uh, female juror in Wyoming. They also had the first female governor.
2: Mm-hmm. And the, fir- and uh, they gave women the right to vote very, very early. Uh, and from what I've heard from living there for a couple of years is that like, a lot of these were tactics to get miners to be willing to miners, as in the people who dig and pull things out of the ground, not children, to uh, be willing to move to the state. <laughs> to um,
0: give us your miners.
1: <laughs> hey, so, there, fella, if, if, you're running away from home with that sack of your shoulder. Come to <laughs> Wyoming.
2: Are you are you under 18? Here's a gold pan. <laughs>
0: Wait, What? Um, you're perfect. a <laughs> youngster like yourself. Sorry, <laughs> it's totally derailed that. No, no, but uh, what was astounding to me was that this the racial
1: components of this doesn't seem that dated. And it's made in 1957, which it's not exactly a time when viewing the problems with race is, uh, I could say, popular or uh, well-practiced. And it, it's, a, it's done in such a way that I kept expecting to be like, hmm, well, that's not going to go down well today. And minus the fact that there's one deliberately racist character, which... We still have those today that this movie doesn't stick its foot in its mouth.
0: And that's surprising to me. Do you think there's like a certain level of pass when it comes to like belligerent older white men? Like, I remember when I was watching this for the first time for the podcast, I actually ended up watching this earlier today. Aven's nanny had never seen it. And she asked me what movie we were doing for the podcast. And I told her, and she's like, "Oh, I've never seen it." So I, was like, I just tossed it on again. And as we watched it, like she was like, "Oh my god!" Like every time the not not the guy who has you know son issues, but the other older gentleman on the other side who's just like, "Oh, you know these people." Like every time that came up, she's like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, you. I, like, I know. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty. You know, he he obviously has opinions that aren't good, but. I, I feel like in my head the whole time, I'm still thinking, eh, but he's old as F. So, <laughs> like, I, I
1: guess. I think what you're talking about is expectations. Like, you're not shocked to hear it out of somebody's mouth, but you're still, you got to be disappointed because like, it's just like, oh. Well, yeah, of course. This but, is what I'm dealing with in, now.
0: I, I, I guess in the back of my mind, it's always like, okay, that opinion won't last much longer.
2: Yeah, I mean there's that that great scene in the film where he's ranting and raving with his racism and everyone just gets up and turns their back to him.
1: That that's really a very bold m- motion though like think awesome. about like I I just would tune somebody out and be like I'm going to like not pay attention to you anymore but to just be like I'm literally going to get up from the table and face the wall. That's that's hard. <laughs> you know like that's a hard pass on on what you're hearing.
2: Also, you know, this is uh I, Is obviously the first time I've watched this movie since a airborne global pandemic has changed all of our lives forever. But the fact that he's just like openly coughing the entire movie made me so (laughs) uncomfortable. I'm just like, oh God, everyone get out of there! You're gonna get the Rona. Put a mask on. Every time I
0: heard a cough, it was Delta, Lambda,
2: Delta. Also. We have yet to talk about how sweaty this movie is. It is a sweaty, oh, it's a very sweaty, sweaty movie. movie. It's a super sweaty movie. These twelve dudes get wet just sitting there,
0: <laughs> sitting there in, in their own juices. Uh, oh yeah, you know you know that
1: that's the kind of day in New York City with that urban like air. but that's like,
2: kind of like that kind of like it, it, it helps the mood of the movie so much to watch these guys get more and more disheveled and frustrated and stressed and the fact that you can see the pit stains and the, the moisture on the chest and like beads of sweat dripping down their heads like it, 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 it's a, you know they it, it helps amp up the tension and set the mood for the atmosphere of what it must be like in that room in a way that uh, is just so good.
0: Except for the one actual extraterrestrial.
2: Who is? I mean,
0: we, we we all we all noticed juror number three. They even brought up. It's like, don't you sweat? No, I don't. Four, you yeah, You're an alien. Four. But he eventually does. You, he eventually does. Or four. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's like you you are in fact an alien. Yeah, he does. That, That's
1: a big deal when he sweats because he's about to change his mind and he's realizing that he's put up a very logical case against something. He feels regret over that. That's when the sweat. He
0: was he was cool under pressure.
2: Now, can we talk? Can we talk about how? juror 10 is like if clark kent became don draper <laughs>
0: uh no no, no. Wait, wait wait clark kent and don draper were both far cooler than
2: that dude <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah he is kind of a dude do- he thinks he's he thinks he's cool though he thinks he's cool yeah
0: don, don draper would have like laughed that guy out of their office
2: Definitely. Yeah, but I, I did I did it is cool that like I, I mean the first episode of Mad Men is in like nineteen fifty nine, so like two years after this. So, mm-hmm. I mean this guy was like a madman, you know, mad madman. I, I, I wanted
1: that life so bad. <laughs> Something we've talked about that this movie uses a number of times, it's disproving your argument through your argument.
2: Oh, it's such, it's such, it's a masterclass.
1: Yeah, juror number 10 does this, juror number 3 does this, Henry Fonda's character juror number 8 entices and almost baits them and sets them up and to get him to say, like, you know, I'm going to kill you. Well, you don't really mean that, though, don't do Really? Do you? do you? Yeah.
2: Or or just like or when they when when one juror claims, "Well, this was the piece of this was the one piece of evidence that convinced me you could throw out the rest of the evidence that the prosecutor presented, but this one evidence, piece of evidence convinced me." So then that's the one that Henry Fonda goes after next, you know. And it's just it's so masterfully done. And it makes it it makes me a little heartsick that like if I wish I wish I had more situations in my life where people I had fundamental disagreements with, I had like, I could lock us all in a room and just talk to them calmly until we could figure out what would convince them, you know, like, it makes me I wish for that.
0: 100% agree.
1: It does help when you look around the room and you're like, uh, it's like the guy in the back of the bus there with no pants on, uh, you know, in a tinfoil hat, he agrees with you. And you start to look at yourself and go, <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. <laughs>
0: So I've made bad choices. It's like it's,
1: that is one of those things where like it, it causes you to look in the mirror because of their anger. So juror number ten and jurors number three, anger and emotions come through so much. And that's why it was so compelling. Juror number four, who's I don't sweat, he's very logical, he's a broker, and he's incredibly detail oriented. He's he's almost the the foil to Henry Fonda's character because he's trying to make a good choice. He tries to make a good decision and he's not, he's not out to be a bad person or he's not swayed by racism necessarily. He just literally thinks that he has pretty hard evidence to suggest that this, this character's guilty. And it's just really, really interesting to see how other people agreeing with him so strongly in the wrong way ends up, loosening the strings and the votes start to fall uh, through that.
2: Yeah I mean the moment I, I feel like as a viewer the most dramatic thing that happens in this movie like in a literal sense is the like I'm gonna kill you oh you don't really mean that but for me this movie like the, the moment where I'm the most tensed and like, oh, my God, what's going to happen is when it finally hits six and six, guilty and not guilty. And you're like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. Because like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's sort of where the momentum is picked up to the point where you're like, he can do this. This crazy guy, can he's actually going to pull it off. He's going to convince the rest of them. Oh, it's so good.
0: He's got a no-no going. <laughs> he's got a no-no going.
1: <laughs> I did want somebody to be sarcastic in the room to just be like, you know what? By how loud you are and how angry you are, you suddenly have convinced me. Just like you know how I know you're right? Because you're shouting.
2: <laughs> and and you know, and all the personal attacks.
1: Before I was on the fence, but now that you pointed out that uh, you know you know how these people are. I'm sold, man. I'm
0: <laughs> I've I've said more than one time at work when dealing with an older, usually gentleman, it's like man, I could tell he never hugged his kids. <laughs> and like, I've said that so many times, and I remember thinking with, with juror number uh, three, I was like, ah, that's the kind of guy I'm talking about. Like, that, it's, it's that, it's the Hank Hill, like, mm-hmm. Bobby, if you weren't my son, I'd hug you. Like, <laughs> it's like, I could just tell there is no nurture whatsoever in your personality.
2: And, I don't know, have you, have you guys seen Ted Lasso? I have not, but I need to. Yeah. It's... I watched episode one. Okay, it's one of those shows that like, this sounds hyperbolic, but it genuinely will make you want to be a better person. And I feel that way about Juror 8, Henry Fonda's character. Like, his calmness, his grace, his, the, the it, I, I like, it it guts me when he says the line like, you know, he tells him like, stop trying, like he can't hear you, he never will. Like and, and just his clearness and sense of purpose in, in the room. And then like at the very end of the movie, he finally breaks down Lee J. Cobb's character. And and he gets his final not guilty that he needs to go back and tell the foreman that they're ready to tell the judge a verdict. And Henry Fonda goes and gets the guy's coat for him and puts the coat mm. on him and helps him out of the room. And I'm just like, man, I wish I could be that person sometimes in ways that I am frustratingly not. <laughs> oh,
1: I hear you. So you're saying you might have like gone out the door and then come back in the door and gone like ha and then closed the door real hard. I
2: don't, I d don't, I don't know how I don't know how I would've handled it. I mean, i I've never been on a jury and I've never been a person who who had that sort of calm Presence and sense of purpose, like Henry J. Henry Fonda does. So I just I don't know. I, but I, I, it's it's something. It's that uh, it's that callal thing. It's something I aspire to, right? Even if I can't ever achieve it myself.
1: I was thinking there was a cut scene from this movie where uh, Henry Fonda's character gets everybody to go for not guilty, and then he goes, "You know what? I'm starting to think he's guilty now." <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's I that's have to be the naysayer. <laughs> that's the great thing is that like we don't ever find out if the kid did it. Like that's True. not the point of the movie. It's entirely possible. And that's and that goes back to like Henry Font it's almost his his character's catchphrase. Like, "Yes, but it's possible."
0: I I really feel like that was the crux of the movie is you know, at one point they ask the the guy you all said I should replace if I ever did this. Jack Warden's character, Juror number 7, the salesman. Yeah. 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 All right, Juror number 7. It's like, "Do you understand what reasonable doubt means?" Well, yeah I do like I, I I don't feel like anybody in that room like I think I feel like when he pulled that knife out of his pocket right there that's reasonable doubt like just the fact that he was able to produce an exact duplicate of the murder weapon out of his pocket at that moment when they said it was a super unique knife like that's that alone is reasonable doubt I had I
1: had a harder time uh like, the alibi that didn't pan out, like, nobody saw you at the movie, nobody saw you buy your ticket, you don't have your ticket stub in your pocket, etc. Like, that was that was where I, as a viewer, was kind of being like, yeah, what are they going to do to get around that? Because, obviously, seeing something through an elevated train should have, that was pretty That was pretty flimsy to start with, and, you know, the old man not being able to get to the door in time, and thinking he saw something. The movie one was the one that, like, for me, I was like, how are they going to get around that?
2: But that's the, that's the whole thing, is that, like, it's entirely possible this kid did kill his dad. Like you end the movie not ever knowing if they let a guilty man go free, but you end the movie knowing that the prosecution did not do their job. If 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 he really did kill his dad, the prosecution didn't do a good enough job in convincing these 12 men, especially Henry Fonda's character, juror seven, that that was, or juror eight, that that's what happened. I think that that shows our justice system working the way it ought to in a way where it very often doesn't even today. So
0: that was literally going to be my next question is after watching this movie, are you more or less comfortable with our justice system?
2: More? I mean, less because this is a fantasy.
0: <laughs> it's because it's fiction.
2: Well, I, I,
1: I, I like the idea of the reasonable doubt. I think, I think the the man who was an immigrant there who was, I believe, jury number the watchmaker. Ele- yes, the watchmaker. He's jury number eleven. 11. Which that guy's doctor. He's
2: uh, Doctor Manhattan's dad, right? That's who that character is. He had a, <laughs> he had
1: a, he had some inspiring moments there, where he was proud. Obviously, he picked this place to come to, but he really did appreciate the justice system for what it was. So, he don't even speak good English. Doesn't. You know, when he when somebody changed their vote from guilty to not guilty, even though it agreed with him, he was upset with him, as if to say like. What made you choose that? Well, I just got to get out of here faster. It serves my purpose. And he was angry at him. He's like, this is a person's life. To your question, Ryan, I think it makes me more have more faith in the justice system because to be tried by your peers is, is pretty cool that that was in our constitution at that point in time. That's actually kind of special and something that so many people at this point in time might take for granted.
0: I think this movie illustrates the only point in time where I've ever approved of someone correcting someone else's grammar.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a good one in The Simpsons, I think, with Mo.
0: That's fine, but still, <laughs> it's just—it's one of those things where I was like, Haha. "Oh."
2: <laughs> Me feel English? That's
1: impossible.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Um, I actually really like the facial expressions that juror number eight pulls out at times, like really when he has like an epiphany or he's thinking of something. Like, it, I think it at times it could probably be chalked up to overacting. But if you really think of something, like, oh, holy crap, I can turn this on its end. And when he figures out the glasses piece, like, that was, like, I, I genuinely got the sense of epiphany there. And I loved that. Like, that whole sequence was terrific because it wasn't driven by Fonda he wasn't the one that hurdled that obstacle Mm -hmm. it was the guy willing to give him a chance
2: Mm -hmm. very good point this movie does a really good job demonstrating a thing that I think happens to a lot of us in our daily lives is that like when you meet someone new you tend to just project your own like well if I feel this way this other person I'm talking to assuming that they're a reasonable and sensible person must agree with me right and then like when you're in a situation like jury duty that gets flipped on its head because like them agreeing with you or not agreeing with you on all the little things about the world that you just assume and take for granted becomes life or death stakes. And I think it's really interesting to watch those little micro interactions between just two of the jurors uh, where that seems to happen and and people kind of butt heads in these soft, uh, socially uncomfortable ways. And then because I've seen this movie enough times, a thing i really enjoyed from an acting perspective is now now i know when when one character is speaking look around the room at what the other character is doing because everyone's acting the whole time like nobody is breaking character everybody's given it they're all they're reacting to things that are happening they're reacting to something that you know you can't see that's happening off screen i just really like watching everyone else's facial expressions while the movie is happening in front of them too
1: yeah and Sometimes, as time goes by, the integrity of some names starts to fall off, but this is this is a worthy cast. I mean, Henry Fonda, Martin Baslam, uh, who's the foreman at the front, and Ed Begley, who's your racist juror number 10, uh, The these guys are all Oscar winners, and two additional ones are Oscar nominees. So Lee Cobb and Jack Warden are uh, as well. So almost half of your cast have Oscar nominations, if not wins, to their name. So... It, it really is a very talented group of guys and their chemistry together is very, very good for where a movie is just basically face shot, face shot. The whole time, it, it, it demands good acting and it demands a good script. And We've talked how at length how this is a great script, but I just want to make sure we head home. Everybody's lifting their weight as a heavyweight actor here. Good work on the whole cast.
0: Agreed. Totally agree.
1: It's interesting. Henry Fon is not just the actor here. He helps create this movie. He's the producer and helps get this movie made.
0: I have found just this is a generality and I I can't back it up like to a huge extent, but I do feel like when I really enjoy a movie like when I would consider my not to say this is a cult movie, but the things that I'm really enthusiastic about like this movie, I almost always find out that one of the main people in it was a driving force in making sure it got made.
1: Well, you're not wrong here.
0: And, and, well, no, I, I, no, I understand this, this feeds into my argument, but I just, it it surprises me uh, often that when I'm like, gosh, this was such a good movie. Like, why don't more people know about this movie or why haven't more people seen this movie? And then I find out, you know, I, I find out like Jennifer Garner had a hand in it or, you know, whoever, but somebody that was in the movie who did a great job and it was worth making the person that I liked was one of the driving forces in getting it made. And I'm like, Oh God, that just doubles down on this. Like it, it makes it even better.
1: Absolutely. This was made for television initially And Reginald Rose had rewritten the film. And Henry Fonda was the one who picked this up and wanted to see it brought to a film adaptation. Movie studios were not keen on it. It's basically been given away for free. And who wants to see that? And keep in mind, as we talked about with Ben Hurd, The Ten Commandments... These big spectacle pieces are what's selling. And this did fail the box office largely because of that. Who wants to go see 12 angry men in an air conditioned room yell at each other the whole time? It, it, I mean, it really isn't even a good title for the movie, I don't think. That didn't sell, and so... It's have, honest. Yeah, it, well... <laughs> But because the movie film failed to profit, Henry Henry Fonda was a producer in that he he deferred his, his profits and his salary from this later. So he kind of took the hit. But ultimately, in the end, his legacy is largely defined by this Grapes of Wrath and uh, the Oxbow incident. Sometimes you just got to go out there. He believed in himself. Financially, he wasn't rewarded. But in terms of glory, we're still talking about Henry Fonda here in 2021.
2: Agreed. It's like that line in uh, one of the Pirates sequels where it's like, you must be the worst pirate I've ever heard of. It's like, but you have heard of me.
1: (laughs) You have heard of me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Sidney Lumet makes his directorial debut. He's done television before, and Henry Fonda sought him out to do this. He thought he would be the right man for the job. Ryan, did you feel like Sidney Lumet as a director is the right man here?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Sidney Lumet's one of the greats. Uh, Yeah, I think his... His body of work speaks for itself on almost every level, uh, you know, for decades upon decades. You know, I think you could put this movie, Dog Day Afternoon, you know, some of his other films up, up on the pedestals.
1: The Verdict is another good courtroom. Movie.
2: Yeah. I mean, so, uh, w- one of the all time great American directors, I think it has to be said. So,
1: One of the great all time moles on the side of your
2: face, too. <laughs> network, network! What a, what a, what a like dark vision of the future that actually really did come to pass, right? Like it's, I mean, what what more prosaic movie is there than Network? Right? We're living through the, the effects of what that movie was telling us we should be worried about.
1: He he runs a tight ship. He he makes the cast rehearse exhaustingly for two weeks before this, but they complete the movie in only 21 days, and it's a total of 365 shots. It's tight. Because they had to be tight from, from a cost standpoint. And he did a good job with most of that. Minus maybe the backdrop in the background. That's a setting comment I might come back to. But uh, yeah. It's amazing how much he gets right. He's changing the camera uh, at the beginning of this movie. The camera starts really overhead. It kind of sensed like this, mm, this powerful, this like overall magnitude. What's really at stake? And then as they begin to discuss, the camera moves down at a face-to-face level. With each other. And then by the end of the movie, as they're nearing a decision, it's looking up at Jar number eight and the people who are speaking as if to say they have become more powerful through this because they look like they're towering over the camera. It's also a movie that instills claustrophobia. So the heat of the room, is, as you guys mentioned, is, is a big part of it. but also the way that the camera is shot is trying to make you feel like this is a tight space. And they don't really let up until the very, very, very end when they switch to a super wide-angle lens as they walk out of the courthouse and to make you feel like, ah, oh, I'm fresh air.
0: I mentioned earlier that, you know, less is more in a film is often very difficult, to say the least, to do. And I think that, especially at the time, there were not extravagant sets in the same way that we're used to seeing now. So he was really doing a Blair witch, a devil, a phone booth. He was doing one of those movies that even with the limited limitations of the time was in itself limited to, and for how well he did it was just striking to me. Like this is one of the, how many movies can you really name where the, you know, it literally happens in one room the entire time. And you're like, Oh man, that was epic. Yeah. So I, I, I always hats off and, and nod to anyone who can do that sort of thing.
1: And they they only change scenes kind of by, A, going to the bathroom and having a conversation between juror number eight and juror number six. And uh, there's a few other people who come and go in between there as well. Uh, but that's kind of a turning point. It breaks the momentum. It served as a change of pace for the movie. Uh, so limited... Uh, real estate still being used as well as they go over to the windows to talk and even though I'm very aware that's a backdrop that's still used as a break from the table and they're, he's using every inch of space that he has as a director and uh, he's building tension through the camera work in particular so uh, it, it's really good filmmaking
2: and I, I didn't even mind the painted backdrop because I thought it like it helped give this the sense of like a stage play so I actually thought that kind of, kind of worked
0: also
1: agreed. It's funny Henry Fonda, as uh, again producer and actor, came in to it and saw it and said uh, that that backdrop looks like um, I'm gonna say poop. <laughs> and uh, Sidney Lumet tried to calm him down, and say like, look, you know, the the, the cinematographer and I, are, we're gonna shoot in such a way it's gonna turn out great. And uh, he didn't like it. In the end, he said it it, it did look like poop. Uh, he said uh, the, the backdrops that Alfred Hitchcock used in his movies look so real that you could walk into them. The, the perspective was all wrong, too. So, like, where you are at the height of this mm, building yeah, that's a good doesn't point. make that's any a point. sense either. So, anyway, I mean, it, it is old school Hollywood, but that's to your point. That's how good this movie is. You're so focused in the conversation between the characters. You're not picking apart the background. It does make me wonder why they didn't go on location to shoot. I guess back in this time... It's just too hard to control the light. And they were on such a tight budget. They literally moved the lights. So they were shooting all of the close up shots for Jura number nine, just say, or Jura number four, all oh, at one time. So they shot out a sequence, which I think as an actor would be difficult. But they, they were on such a shoestring budget, they wanted to move the lights on the set as little as possible. And so everything's done and then stitched together later in post-production. It's hard to believe you don't skip any beats when you do that, but when you watch it, there's it certainly doesn't suffer for that.
2: No, it's, I'm actually very surprised to find out that this was not filmed in sequence, but that's that makes sense for uh, logistics reasons.
1: A lot of movies we have covered have done it in sequence to in order to help their actors, the flow and the emotion of everything. But so yeah, it, it does make you wonder. Are you know how do they? Uh, so I, I haven't seen any gaffes on this or or, or any bloopers, but are are somebody's just pit come stains? And, come and go. Yeah. Going up and down. I'm wondering. Yeah, that, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah.
2: Well, it turns out all of these actors uh, were alive in color, and so it's kind of a gaff that uh, this movie suggests that they have no color, and are indeed black and white. <laughs> this is this is this is in the ple- yes, this is in the yeah. Pleasantville shared cinematic universe. Okay. Oh, <laughs> hey. <laughs>
0: The, no, this might sound weird, but uh, I, I I admitted to my parents at one point that any time I pictured their childhood, I did it in black and white. <laughs> Whatever I picture, I, I, I heard, don't you any, made your
1: parents feel by saying that?
0: I I well, here's the thing, like I don't I don't have a good reason why I did it, but I like maybe it's just because I have watched movies forever. But like I was just like guys, like I I don't mean this to be a knock, but I legit like cannot separate. Me picturing a story you tell about you as a child and not doing it in black and white.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe your daughter will grow up and think uh, that you were 64-bit, like Mario or Gold and I were, in back in the day.
0: Um, I, I am. I'm, I'm super curious. I, I even have booksellers right now that I their take on stuff that happened, you know, five years before their birth which, you know, we were 10, 12, 15 at that time. And their take on it, I'm like, that's crazy. Like, my, just,
2: my version of that is um, I thought The Wonder Years was actually a show from the 60s. <laughs> and so I didn't. I, I, so I was whenever I pictured my parents growing up, I always pictured it as like an episode of The Wonder Years with Daniel Stern narrating at the beginning and the end. And that was my that's my version of that, Brian.
0: I did too for a very long time. Yeah, I did. I, I think I think mine all came from Andy Griffith.
2: Yep, yep, that's a good one too.
1: And I, I, I realized the Wonder Years wasn't actually old when I actually saw Fred Savage talking about the Wonder Years and I was like, shouldn't he be like a million years old at this point? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well but but here but here's the point, like the like more toward what I'm talking about with, with even younger people that you know I have FaceTime with on a normal basis. I could say, "Oh, I always pictured it like Andy Griffith." And Andy Griffith happened before my time. Like that's sure. not a my time show. And I would say that and they'd be like, "Who's Andy Griffith?" Wow. And you're like, "Oh, no, no, it's far worse than that." I mean, it is far, far worse. Than, like like I can at least intellectually understand how someone born in the 2000s don't doesn't know who Andy Griffith was. That's fine. Like I can deal with that. But like yesterday I said, Oh, you know, tombstone's awesome. I love Val Kilmer. No, I was talking about Willow. I was like, Willow is awesome. I love Val Kilmer and one of my booksellers was like, Who's Val Kilmer? And I'm like, I I need a minute You hurt
1: Brian a little bit there just now.
0: I was like, I need a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna go
1: somewhere and die. No, it, it happens. Somebody, one, of, one of my co-workers said, who's Pearl Jam? So, And that, and, and even in how we're talking about this cast, it, it, it's kind of wild that even here on a movie podcast, we're talking about, uh, it's like, and bear in mind, Lee Cobb was a significant actor at the time. So, I mean, uh, we're even guilty of doing it ourselves. I mean, this is, this is a very talented cast.
0: Well, true, true. But, I mean, we take our time, like, this podcast is a testament to we take our time to appreciate the past. And I, I do feel like that is something that's that's getting lost to a certain degree.
1: Well, we're, we're the soldiers, of, we're the retro soldiers or the retro, uh, the, the knights of the retro movie roundtable. <laughs> so is, are there any movies by Sidney Lumet that also jump off the page to you that you felt like this led up to? Like when you watch The Wiz, do you feel like this this led up to it some way?
0: No, not in that same way, but I will give uh, complete kudos to Ryan on this. That was very eloquently put about him, and this is... I I don't think you can say it any better than that.
1: I was looking through his filmography, and I did uh, did initially get to Child's Play, and I was like, that doesn't fit. And then (laughs) (laughs) apparently there is a 1972 Child's Play that does not have a murdering toy named Chucky in it, so... I was guilty of it's unfortunate. I, I was guilty of doing the uh, young person thing there as well, so obviously this is a very tight movie, but the atmosphere that they're in kind of talked about how the heat did you feel like as the day was wearing on that the actors and this and the plot was kind of like influencing like the dynamic of what was happening with these characters ryan
2: this movie j- i mean this movie just draws me further and further in every time I watch it you know i start i always I don't want to say I started at, at an emotional distance, but and you know the beats and how they're going to go. But I feel like as this movie gets sweatier and sweatier and more close up shots, I'm leaning in to the screen more and more. So for me, it's just, the, I think the way that it, it, it builds on the tension and the atmosphere in the room helps draw me in as a viewer up until, you know, the final moments. It is amazing
1: to me how this is a, like, you know, I keep looking down, like this is 88 on the suspense. Sad, the thrills list of AFI, and I'm sitting there going like, it really is shocking that this movie is suspenseful, and I might even say that that's underrated. I was, it was quite exciting, and yeah, um, the contained environment, the the short period of time. This movie's not even very long. It's it's kind of fast. And, and mm-hmm. Brian, I know you're always asking for more, but of the other AFI movies that are um, mentioned up there, this is this one's on the shorter side. So this is the only IMDb movie in the top 10 that is under two hours of length. And of the IMDb ratings, uh, it's the only one to be under 100 minutes length uh, that have a two-digit runtime other than City Lights, so in the top 30. So there's normally these more highly rated movies or loved, beloved movies tend to have longer runtimes. It, in its own right, it's a short run.
0: So uh,
1: that's something that's interesting too.
0: I think that there is a there's a normalcy to wanting more from something you love, but not at the price of sacrificing what makes it lovable. So in a movie that prizes itself on succinctness, on accuracy, on um, less is more on. You know, really conveying a real piece of, you know, drama that is unfolding. Um, I don't think that I would ever intentionally say like, "Oh, I wish there was more to this." No, it was it was perfect the way it is. Like, it, it's exactly what it needed to be. Um, it didn't overreach itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, another moment of how little. Moments go a long way. How long do you think the defendant is shown on camera? But it's enough to show you that this is a very young person. I'm not exactly sure what race this person is, particularly since they're shot in black and white, but it is some, some, like maybe Italian, Hispanic. We I can't, I can't say. And I also see that he's scared to death. Like he is so scared. That sets the tone for that. And they didn't give a long backstory. They didn't show flashbacks they didn't show the court case
0: i actually right. think
1: that that could be a comedy for how bad your lawyer is that henry fonda comes in and could do it better
0: well architects
2: i mean i mean you know it's a game of inches with this movie but I, I also almost think that the final scene outside the courthouse is unnecessary like i almost think you could cut that wow sure because it, i mean it's 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 a interesting moment between two of the characters but it the plot's over at that point and really, and the relationship between these characters is over at that point. And so I just, I almost didn't even need the final scene, which like to be thinking in terms of this movie is so tight and so good that I think you could even shave a few seconds off instead of adding more, I think speaks again to how masterfully put together it is.
0: And, and and that's a good point because uh, like if they had cut that off, it's like everybody in this movie is nameless like they're not elevating Henry Fonda as a named character he's juror number 8 Right. like
1: even in the billing even in the billing when you read the billing like it's just 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 Anyone 10 11 else. 12 like that's billing yeah. like yeah. it's just 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12
2: like and it's... we'll talk we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit in a little bit when we go through some of some of the superlatives but like really the only thing they do to distinguish Henry Fonda's character from the other characters is they give him a, a very a costume that stands out relative to everyone else's and i think that that's significant in setting the tone at the beginning of the movie for how this is gonna go
1: yeah he's very not architecty architects in today's times are very like we're all black but he was wearing
2: white so
0: yeah where was the pearl jam
1: t-shirt oh, well, i
2: think that's i think that's in i think that's intentional i think you know he's he's the man in white coming in riding in to save the day
1: yeah you could be right. So, uh, that might've been a very deliberate move on the wardrobe department. And, uh, you know, nothing says I don't give a crap, like a checked cap.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: that is definitely, if I saw a dude wearing that hat today that I didn't already know for so you're in the clear, I would definitely probably, <laughs> I, would, I would probably steer clear in the words of Ronnie Dangerfield. It looks good on you though. <laughs> Oh, I, I hope to do that movie. Soon. I don't
0: even think I can pull off that hat. <laughs> comes with a,
2: comes with a free bowl of soup. Um, <laughs> that really should be a
1: good gimmick, by the way, selling a hat here, like, <laughs> and a degenerate gambling is, problem is good
2: for a bowl of soup. <laughs> <laughs> any any music or soundtrack notes? Uh, I mean, the soundtrack is pretty. It's pretty spartan. It's pretty minimal. Like it, but I think it works really nicely. I think it. It kind of, it's a, the soundtrack is almost melancholic. It, it has a sort of a weird kind of wistfulness about it that is not probably what I would have immediately gone to mentally for a, a movie set entirely in a jury room, but I think it works.
1: It's not the most present movie, and to be honest with you, that's another one of the things that shocks me, again, to Lumet's credit, to have a movie that's so gripping and so thrilling that sits in a room. It's almost like if you said it breaks all the rules of screenplay writing. It seems to break all the rules for how to build suspense too because the music is very, very important to building suspense in a lot of movies. And
0: that's... It's it's not a knock on this one. I'm just saying that 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 everything else happens in a way that makes it not... It's subtle. ...as necessary.
1: It's subtle and understated and that's not where the tension's coming from. It's coming from the acting and the screenplay and, and the camera work. So... Again, you're right. Not a knock. It's just when we do our superlatives at the year end for like, you know, it won't be winning best soundtrack. It, it, it does not pop out. It's, it's shockingly understated given how suspenseful this movie is.
2: But it also doesn't feel like a movie that's trying to win best soundtrack.
1: That's fair. Right. That's fair. All right. It's superlative time. It's my favorite time. Ryan, do you oh, want to so start excited. us off? Yeah. Like, who is your MVP of 12 Angry Men?
2: I gotta say, I'm quite fond of that man in white, Henry Fonda.
1: Oh, I see what you did there by being fond of him. (laughs) Yep. Not only is he your lead actor, but he also is the guy who put up the money, got the studios behind him, and said, like, I believe in this movie. Please make it. And everyone said no, and he still got it done anyway, and even delayed his paycheck on it. So uh, it's hard not to pick him. That's my pick, too. Brian, what about you? Is it a straight flush?
0: Uh, it's a straight flesh right there. I was going to say I take two and redo, but you beat me to it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's the obvious choice. Now, this one's very hard. Uh, of the other 11 people in this movie, who's your best supporting? Ryan.
2: I went with Lee J. Cobb, I, juror number three. Um, yeah, I think I, to me, he's, you know, he's the Joker to Henry Fonda's Batman.
1: Yep. He's a powerhouse for
0: sure. Great choice. Brian, what about you? I went with juror number
2: nine. The the old man.
0: Yeah. I, I love it, man. Like he's just, like, that was, that was just, it was so much fun to watch that scene. And I'll go more into this as the superlatives go on, but his backing of Henry Fonda's character is both subtle mm-hmm. and not throughout mm-hmm. the movie. And I really enjoyed that.
2: Yep.
1: It's definitely one of those moments where he it was he had a chilling moment where he was saying, like, It's a sad thing to be nothing and like like he was like explaining yeah. to them like what it's like to get to that age. So you're right. He he was a impactful character, great choice.
2: And to me it's an important Like, everything about this movie is so purposeful from... I mean, because there's so little to this movie, every element of it has to sing and do its part just right. And so even the way that the characters are arranged around the table feels very purposeful and very important. And the fact that they put the oldest man in the room next to the racist and to sort of, like, juxtapose and just (laughs) be like, yeah, turns out older people than you aren't as racist as you. So, like... You have no excuse for your attitudes about other people right now because, like, it, you, can't just, you can't just say, oh, juror number 10, he's old, he doesn't get it, when the person sitting next to him is older and does get it, you know?
1: No, that's that's, very, right. that's a very good point. And I'm going to go with E.G. Marshall for my best supporting actor. He is juror number four. He's your meticulous stockbroker who doesn't sweat so much until the very end, anyway.
2: I think technically the watchmaker would be more meticulous. True,
1: true, Uh, (laughs) and he was great too. He was great too. I wanted to give him an award, but I, I, I I had to go with E.G. Marshall on this one because he holds so many cards at the end. And there's, there's a moment where he puts such a good case together. He swings the somewhat flippant. I'm gonna call him Bad Don Draper in this case. Um, That's juror twelve. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Bad Don Draper, juror number twelve, flips, flip flops. He is powerful in a way his facial acting he has a lot of presence in this i'm eager to see eg marshall doing some other roles man i could really see him doing a good villain role not that this role was villainous i actually think that he meant he had all the best intentions but he had a lot of presence for me in this one so i this was my introduction to eg marshall and i liked him
2: nice this might
0: sound also weird but uh joseph sweeney who played juror number nine is the only unpictured member of the jury in on imdb Oh, how mysterious!
1: Yeah, hidden gem. This is a movie where the casting is very equal, so this is equally hard. Who's your hidden gem, Ryan?
2: Okay, so we, you said under, underappreciated minor cast or element.
1: There's normally more ancillary characters in a movie than this, so this is where it's going to give you some chance. Yeah, be be a uh, challenge the
2: format if you need to. Well, I thought I thought the element of this movie. I can pick a cast member, but the element that came to mind to me that's a part of this movie that that kind of I always am, am tickled by is when it starts raining and they and the juror 7 realizes the ball game's going to get delayed, so his him holding on to these tickets and that him being like a super important thing to him isn't as much a factor anymore. But if we're going to go hidden gem for a person within the cast, I think the foreman deserves a lot of credit, uh, but also the—I the, don't know—the little, the little dweeby dude, the the banker, juror number two, John Fiedler, um, yeah, yeah. I I, I like—I'll give it to—I'll give it to juror two because I like how he comes into his own and, over the course of the movie and kind of um, puts on his big boy pants and, and and stands up to some of the bullies in the in the in the rest of the cast. So I'll give it to juror two.
1: During number one, Martin Baslam does not give his opinions or reasoning at any point. That's like the only like he's like everybody else has to justify themselves. But because he's the foreman, he's running the show. He never goes like,
2: I'm not going to tell you what I think and why I feel that way. And I like that. I like that. Like he's he's not the judge. He's not impartial. But I like that he kind of takes this whole process in from a little bit of an emotional distance that none of the other characters really seem to possess.
1: Fair. Brian, hidden gem for you. Is it the fan that magically started working when you turned on the light switch? Uh,
0: no, I went with Tom Gorman on this one. In a very limited cast, I had to, uh, to take the opportunity to say that Tom Gorman was an unaccredited actor in this as the stenographer in the courtroom, but was actually uh, from Morgantown, West Virginia.
2: Wow. So, what a pull.
0: Hats, hats off to Tom Gorman.
2: Well, home. It's on, home,
0: Brian. home little piece of home. Very hidden, very
1: hidden, and I appreciate that. Mine's less hidden, but still Man. doesn't get much screen um, time. I'm a literate
2: with... West Virginian from 1957, that's amazing. <laughs> yep. I'm going to go with
1: John Sivaka, the accused, who is unaccredited. I just feel like he has a good, oh, crap face. Interesting.
0: <laughs> could that judge have given less of a crap? <laughs> Can so we just talk about that for one second? He like, could have looked I his
1: watch and been like, Dick Van Dyke's on in a little bit guys By let's the wrap way, this up. So there
0: will be no leniency. I'm definitely going to kill him. You should probably think about this.
2: Yeah, recast Ryan. So this this is going to fly in the face of Russell's pick. I would recast the defendant. Oh. He, he gets so little screen time, but I think uh he he does a great uh, I'm very worried about my predicament face, but I think <laughs> I think you could have cast someone maybe who looked a little older. I think he just looks a little too... I mean, this is such a minor nitpick on a movie that I love. I think he looks a little young. And I know he's supposed to look young, but I think he just looks a little too young. And I think you could have found someone who looked a little more ethnic. I think even if... And I think if you had gone all the way to casting like an African-American actor, this that would change the entire tone of the this movie, right? You could, you could change nothing else about the film. If there's an African-American guy sitting in that in the in the chair waiting to find out what the verdict uh is going to be, I think this this movie has a different impact. So.
1: It does. It does, and that's a good point. Now, recast Brian.
0: Edward Benz. Uh he was juror number 5, I think. Uh he's not like this this we can agree that this is probably fairly void of comic relief. I I actually wanted to recast him for Jerry Lewis. Oh wow. Like not not specifically to be funny, but to give the impression of funny. Yeah, I, I feel like if someone saw Jerry Lewis in this, they're like, Oh, Dude, there's gonna like this is a time where if you see Jerry Lewis in a movie, you're like, oh, there's there's gonna be some some pop, some spunk, some funny. He's the one that's always standing up for the older guy. He's like, I'm you know I'm gonna slug you if you keep this up. I oh, think that's your if six. you put Jerry Lewis or six, sorry, uh, if you put him in. It's whichever Jerry. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was I was sitting there
1: yeah. yeah, okay. I was gonna say I don't I want was, any. I, fun. I want no funny out of juror number uh, five, who is the uh who was the, the, the one who was from the low class. Grew up in the rough
2: neighborhood. That, that, no,
0: I'm 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 sorry. I'm one off because I wasn't counting the jury foreman as juror number one. Got to You gotta, you gotta, gotta count the time. foreman
2: as number one. We've said it once. We said yeah. it a thousand times. Yeah, um. <laughs> it, that's been
0: screwing me up this whole time. So, but so, uh, anyway. Edward Benz's character, I'd switch with Jerry Lewis just because it would give the impression that something funny is going to happen, but then actually making it more of a dramatic piece when he's the guy standing up for the older one.
2: I agree. He was almost he was almost my pick because I also think you could have cast him with someone bigger and more intimidating because he is kind of the heavy in the room and a
0: gentle giant.
2: Yeah, I think you could have cast him with someone who was more of a physical presence that feels like, oh, I don't want to be on this guy's bad side because he could slug me and it would hurt a lot. And and what you, when you were talking about juror five, the thing that I kept thinking about was if if I'm recasting the defendant, you also kind of have to recast juror five because those two characters are linked and they have to be they have to look like they came from the same neighborhood. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, no,
1: that's a that's also a good point. Yeah, juror number five is actually supposed to be a younger. Uh, actor but they ended up you know Sydney lumet said you're right for the role you got to do this and
2: juror five jack Klugman's performance he has such a simmering rage about this entire situation that he barely ever lets boil to the surface in a way where all these other characters i think again it speaks to like it speaks to the unearned and obliviousness to their privilege that a lot of the you know very just like coded as straight white male characters present in this movie the fact that like They are perfectly content to cough, to blow their nose, to fly off the handle, to have rage. And this guy, you know, who's seen as coming from this more violent neighborhood, from a a more violent race, which is a ridiculous notion, has to bottle it all up and not let it come out because he doesn't have the luxury that these white men have to express those feelings. I think um, through a modern lens, it, it, it speaks volumes.
0: Yep, There's a line from Letterkenny that I always like to use. It's, uh, well brought up, wish you were. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's
0: good. And, and yeah, to your point, that's that's exactly one of those things. And they actually say something to that effect, like, you know, what makes you you know think you're worthy to say this? And it's like, my upbringing, just the reason that you're a bigot's the reason for you.
1: Mm-hmm. So my recast, I'm coming after bad Don Draper, Robert Weber.
2: How dare you? How I don't, dare I don't, you? Yeah, I just don't feel like he
1: had the. Uh, he didn't seem sleek enough. Didn't seem confident enough. Even though he's going to change with the with whatever whoever is the power in the room, which is a very advertising agency guy thing to do. Uh, I I don't know. I thought back to our uh, Roman Holiday episode, and where we got a different look at Gregory Peck. So take your Att- Atticus Finch hat off. But I think Gregory Peck would have done this shifting character in a far more dramatic, interesting humanizing and warmer fashion than Robert uh, Weber did so that's my pick, Gregory uh, Peck maybe an overcast.
2: Disagree disagree, I love the sliminess I need it. Okay <laughs> Gregory Peck best... is not nearly slimy enough to play juror number 12 in my, in my book uh, You should see
1: Roman Holiday though, he's, uh, he's a bit of a scoundrel there so
2: It's different, scoundrel, oh, it's different than the sliminess It's true Oh, he's a lovable scoundrel. You're right about that.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. So best shot of the movie, Ryan.
2: I love the super close up of Juror Nine's face when they do the secret ballot and they're trying to figure out who said not guilty and it cuts to him and it's super close up and he says, I did. And I just, I love it. I just, he has like an impish, you know, Yoda and Empire Strikes Back quality to his um, (laughs) mucking up the proceedings for everyone else.
0: It was me.
1: It's amazing. That was actually
2: my pick as well. Brian. Really? A,
1: yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I just, uh, that I, it stuck out to me. So. Oh,
2: it's so good. All right. You're back in my good graces. I'll forgive your Robert Webert hate. <laughs>
1: Brian, what about your best shot?
0: Mine was basically the same thing, but in a different place. It's the zoom in on each face as they're contemplating the eyeglasses.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a good
0: one. They they zoom in on each person's face as they have that like, "Oh, I think he's right." Oh, yeah, I remember seeing like it was that that crux of the movie where they're literally overturning like reasonable doubts out the window at this point. Like they've gone past reasonable doubt. Now it's they've they've more proven innocence at this point.
1: Yep. That's a good choice. And if I had to pick a runner up, the moment where they're emulating the knife stabbing down an in moment where we have juror number three looming over juror number eight, given how tense things have been. That's more of a tense moment than a great like the shot's good, but that was that was my runner up. So if I had to pick a just something for diversity's sake, I'll throw that out there
2: as well. Best scene, Ryan. When Lee J. Cobb finally breaks down, uh, when Jura, is it Jura 4? Is that who he is? Um, 3. Or is he? 3. Yeah, Yeah, Jura 3. When he he has his rant at the very end, um, where it just becomes heartbreakingly clear, and it really is heartbreaking. Like, he's he's a sad, lonely man at the end of the day, and an angry man, because he is one of the 12 of the angry men in the room. But when you realize that, like, he's not talking about this kid anymore. He's talking about his relationship with his son, to me, that's just... It's heartbreaking. It's heartfelt. The way he acts through it is viscerally compelling and good. And I just... Yeah, that's my, my best scene in the movie.
1: That's a good one. Brian, what about you? Best scene?
0: S- S- same uh, folks involved, but it's when he finally conjures up the, I'll kill you. But you don't really mean that, do you?
1: That's a great one.
0: Like, that's just... I i, I feel like that's that's the... If there was a climax to this movie, like a real climax to the movie, I feel like that was it. Well, I'm going to challenge you on that one. And I'm saying my
1: climax of the movie, what I felt was the most important scene, and my favorite scene was when the old woman wearing glasses, when juror number four is turned to a not guilty vote. To me, that that's where the tides are turned in the case, and that again, he is he, you know, juror number ten and juror number three are speaking with a lot of emotion. Like I said, like as things escalate, they get more and more emotional. So you're kind of like, it's back to what I said. Like you're agreeing with the guy in the back of the bus who has no pants on, you know, like uh, you know. <laughs> but juror number four adds all of the integrity to the guilty ballots, and he's he's what they're pitching their tent on. And when he starts to say, "Oh my gosh, you wouldn't wear glasses to bed," that was definitely to me that that, that was a very tense moment. So I was like, I was like gripping my uh, hand on my couch, uh, my uh, armchair, on my couch at that point. So uh, I think it's really interesting. We all picked really different, really different best scenes in this movie. It just shows you how good it is.
0: Agreed.
2: Hmm.
1: Best wardrobe moment, which it's kind of timeless. There's there's suits, but. I'm going to ask you to dig deep. What's your best wardrobe or makeup moment, Ryan?
2: I've already kind of given the game away on this one. And it's, it's Henry Fonda's suit, specifically his jacket. The fact that he's got this stark white jacket against a sea of blacks and grays, uh, to me, just it, iconic symbolism for setting up in the beginning of the movie how things are going to go. And I, I love it for that.
1: Great choice. Ryan, best wardrobe moment?
0: I mean, you got to go with the hat, right? I mean we've talked about it enough at this point. Oh, yeah. It may not be as important, but it's gotta be the uh it's all about baseball tickets and that hat. <laughs> uh
1: I I would uh I'm gonna go with the suspenders that we have from juror number eleven, the European watchmaker. Somehow I just don't know why, but like the suspenders just like,
2: Oh yeah, you're from Eastern Europe. <laughs> Does set him apart from everyone else.
1: Yeah. Change one thing, if you had to, Ryan. I can tell you love this movie, but if you had to change one thing, what are you changing?
2: I would change. I would add a scene where we see the judge's reaction to them coming back with a not guilty verdict. And I would love to like. I think it would be funny to have cut if we were gonna make this a comedy with you know Jerry Seinfeld or yeah Jerry Seinfeld or whoever Brian wanted this Jerry movie. Lewis is in it. it. I would love to have like cutaways for the ju- for the judge being like, why are they taking so long? This was an open and shut case, and like, well, they're asking to see, you know the the, uh, the the bailiff being like, well, they're asking to see the knife. Like what? I would just love to see like him reacting to this taking so long and it becoming clear that like, it's not going to go the way the judge thought it was going to go. I think we can all predict what the defendant's reaction is going to be. But like, I would love to see the judge's reaction when they come back with a not guilty verdict.
1: I'd like to see the defense lawyer's face. where it's just like, wait, he didn't do it. Oh, cool. So I win.
2: (laughs) Or, or like the defense just made my money. when when they when they read the verdict and the defense lawyer is like trying to comfort the kid because he wasn't even paying attention and thinks that it's like obviously a guilty verdict and the kid's like no I'm I'm not guilty.
0: Brian, change one thing. Not a darn thing, on this one.
2: Dig deep, dig deep. I think because I change I, that change that backdrop. It looks like poop. Because with with Brian's with Brian's point, like that is my answer as well. Because I admit that if I ch- if you change the one thing I said to change, it is a worse movie but it's
0: it just is. i i, I just like i don't want this movie to be any different than it was like, i will assign
1: you one then a better backdrop that that's that's your pick
0: i i just i felt like watching it I was, I was i was i was trying to think about like okay i had my outline for our conversation tonight and i was like okay you need to figure out to change one thing like i had a couple blanks in this and i was like you got to figure out to change one thing then the movie ended and i was like crap so like literally watched it again today with that in mind and nothing came up like sometimes you just i just need it to stay the way it is
1: okay well along those lines my change one thing is the paper towel dispensers in the bathroom i hate these paper towel dispensers they have like the towel that just rotates around so all you're doing is drying your hands on the thing that somebody else dried their hands on it's gross it's nasty and uh, you still see them occasionally in grungy gas station bathrooms today. So when, when Henry Fonda wipes his face on that, I'm sitting there going like, ah, oh, no, that's nasty. Don't do that. Paper towel dispenser. Well, theoretically,
0: every hand that's touched it was freshly washed.
1: Theoretically, but did they really do it for you know the twenty seconds that are like we've learned to properly do in COVID times? I don't think so. <laughs> If you can't tell, I'm tipping my hand. If I'm picking on paper towel dispensers, I'm about to give a good star rating. So, um. (laughs) By the way, the water fountains were glorious in the hallway. So, there's
2: Mm -hmm. your architecture comment. So, Um, best quote, Ryan. Juror ten, our favorite racist in the room, uh, his continued refrain of wiping the back of his neck with his handkerchief and just going, "Wow, how do you like that?" (laughs) That's the one. Whenever I like, that's one of those. Like secret movie quote. I think I think we all have this where we have like secret movie quotes that we slip into conversation that the person you're talking to doesn't realize you're being a weirdo and quoting a movie that they probably haven't seen or don't care about. So that's one where I, I will say, well, how do you like that? When when something uh, minorly inconveniences me, and and I'm always secretly secretly quoting Juror Ten.
1: That's the best thing that Juror Ten says that you should quote. <laughs>
2: yeah, everything else I'm think I'm gonna leave. leave everything to Juror else 10 is racist. Not mine. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, Brian, best quote. So you a Yankee fan? No, Baltimore. Baltimore? That's like being hit in the head with a crowbar once a day. That was pretty good. (laughs) That was pretty good. I loved this
1: one where they uh, said, uh, beg your pardon? And then juror number 10 looks back to juror number 11 and says, I beg your pardon? What are you being so polite about? And juror number says, for the same reason you are not. It's the way I was brought up. And I was just like, "Ooh, you got served. That is good. All right. So, Ryan, tell the listeners at home one more time where you can hear more from you.
2: ScienceSortOf.com. Uh, I have a personal website, RyanHalp.com, but... I'm trying to be more active on Twitter, so to whatever extent your listeners are also active on Twitter, my username, I joined Twitter early enough that I was able to snag the username at Haupt, so it's just my last name, uh, which is very confusing for people who are fans of a men's shirt, a men's high-end shirt company in Germany that is also called Haupt. So every once in a while, I'll get people tweeting at me that they're heading out to the club and they're helped, and um, I'm, I'm happy for them, but that is also not, not the brand I represent.
0: <laughs> You're telling me with Fry boots.
2: It, it w- yeah, exactly. But it would be nice to order shirts that I didn't have to get monogrammed. So I've thought about putting in an order and getting them shipped across the Atlantic from Germany. I just haven't done it yet. But add helped on Twitter, uh, RyanHaupt.com, and ScienceOrder.com for my podcast where we talk about science.
1: All right, it's the time where we give the show on a rating on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. Ryan, what would you give this movie?
2: Five.
1: I think we saw this coming, and it's fully justified. Uh, Brian, are you gonna go five here?
0: Oh yes, also five.
1: And I'm gonna complete it with a five, and just to show you, like Chad texted me ahead of time to like give my rating. It's a it, he's a, he's a five as well. So, uh, Ryan, thank you for introducing. For me to this movie and uh, reintroducing Brian to it, uh, it's it's been a fun one to do. I really enjoyed this movie.
2: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad that uh, I was I was thrilled when you invited me back on. Then I got nervous because you asked me to pick a movie. Uh, then I got excited again when you said that you would agreed with the Twelve Angry Men selection. And then I actually got to watch Twelve Angry Men again. So like it's been you know it's been a roller coaster of emotions for me, but I think I, I came out on top.
1: No, I mean, this is one of my favorite things. When you discover a movie that's this that's this great that you might not have otherwise, this is one of my, the reasons I love doing this podcast. And then other weeks, Yay. I cover X-Men.
2: <laughs> oh, I did. I watched New Mutants recently, and i uh, whew uh, call me back in 10 years when it's time to do that one on the show, because uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a rough one.
0: Brian, will you help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. And on that uh, a New Mutants thing, I uh, I've... Now split the new Suicide movie or Suicide Squad movie into three watchings. Um, I watched the first 30 minutes, and I was like, all right, I need a break from this. And then I watched another chunk of it earlier today, and I was like, I'm going to watch 12 Angry Men again. So <laughs> 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 I might actually finish it at some point.
1: That probably increased your rating then, so just to shove a five-star <laughs> movie in the middle of any movie. That, that you found, you found right. the ultimate palate cleanser.
2: My favorite thing about right. Zack Snyder's cut of the Justice League is when they all sit down to watch 12 Angry Men together and Zack Snyder just shows the entire movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, there there is a point in that where I was like, oh, they gave each of the superheroes right. a sad song. That's what happened in the Snyder Cut.
1: Not enough slow-mo. <laughs> Not enough slow-mo. Anyway, Brian, are you ready to get out <laughs> and pick a movie for next week? Absolutely. All right, so we are going back and doing some retro science fiction here. It's a a bit of a throwback episode. Option number one, The Last Starfighter from 1984. Video game expert Alex Rogan finds himself transported to another planet after conquering The Last Starfighter video game, only to find out it was just a test. He was recruited to join the team of best starfighters to defend our world from the attack. Option number two, Flight of the Navigator from 1986. In 1978, a boy travels eight years into the future and has an adventure with an intelligent, wisecracking alien ship. Option number three, batteries not included. From 1987, aliens help a feisty old New York couple in their battle against ruthless land developer who's cut out to evict them.
0: Uh, Russ, I think we'll go with Flight of the Navigator.
1: All right. Flying into the future on this one. So uh all right we're looking forward to that one and ryan thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate you having you on
2: thank you so much for having me it's a a a privilege and a pleasure to get to chat with y'all and watch a cool movie and talk about it with your listeners so thank you for inviting me and having me and putting up with me all of the things
0: hey thanks for being on man it's good to hear from you
1: and someday in the future you can make it a straight flush for having everybody have bags on their eyes so if you're ever on the show (laughs)
2: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready.
1: All right. Uh, thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews and ratings help others find the show. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovie roundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Any contributions will be made to make the show better, and we appreciate that. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian?
0: Everybody wants Atticus Finch until they have a dead hooker in the hot tub.